Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. You know, being a free diving instructor requires you to teach others how to hold their breath underwater while not using scuba gear. It's a tankless job. What is a diver's pet peeve? The bends. It really makes their blood boil. My guest today is entrepreneur, marine biologist, educator, and dive instructor, Danelle Vensel. Today, Danelle shares her journey from landlocked farmland in rural South Africa to becoming a dive instructor with over 600 dives under her belt, four-minute breath holds, and her own show and company. As a self-proclaimed freelance marine biologist, Danelle has some incredible stories and experiences to share, including surviving a shark attack. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Danelle, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so stoked to chat with you today. I am beyond excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. Yeah. So let's get started way at the beginning. You grew up, I mean, you're a marine biologist, you're a dive instructor, you do all things ocean now, and you grew up nowhere near the ocean. So what was that like? And how did you discover the wonders of the sea? Yeah, I guess that is a very good question. So going all the way back. When I was a little kid, I always just loved the great outdoors, being adventurous. I grew up on a farm, so I always had that great passion for nature. But it wasn't until I was 11 when I did my first Discover Scuba Dive with my dad, where this whole incredible world that I never even knew existed opened up before my eyes. I remember till this day just falling off the boat and swimming down and seeing all this colorful corals, great swim-throughs fish like it was a whole three-dimensional world and for that like as experience as a kid it was completely mind-changing growing up I didn't really know want to know what I wanted to go study but I always knew that I love the ocean and learning about it I was a big nerd growing up I watched every single shark week series that got posted as like shark was like counting down I would count down the dates just so I can watch all the documentaries So I didn't really have that much access to the ocean other than going on a beach holiday with my family once a year. Always looked forward, like that was the highlight of my year. And then matric, I only, well, matric for us is grade 12. So when I was done with high school, it was only then when I realized marine biology is a career. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in marine biology, but I just knew it was something that I was passionate about. So with the support from my parents, moved all the way from my small farm farm town in Potch to Cape Town and came here to come study my journey. Amazing. So you went from your small farm to a huge city, one, and then two, like, is that when you jumped right into university? Yes. So I went from my small farm town 
And I turned 18 that December, afterwards moved straight into Cape Town to come study. And it was a crazy experience jumping right in the deep end. I went to an Afrikaans primary school and high school. So going from learning about just physics and math and everything in Afrikaans to not even properly being able to speak English. Now I'm at an English university. It was a little bit difficult, I have to admit. Yeah, it was. So that was something we were chatting a little bit before I hit record. Nick and I have traveled to South Africa. And when we were, you know, doing our research ahead of time, and like, even when we were there, there's, I think, like 13 languages, like 13 primary languages in the country or 11, like some over, like over 10. And we were floored by that number. And we're like, that can't be right. But then we got there. And it truly is like, melting pot. It's amazing. There's so many different languages. So yeah, for you to jump from one side of the country to another, which would mean you need to jump languages. No, it was crazy. Yeah, we have 11 national languages. And I also feel like this experience isn't just me. Like there's so many people that have to come from having another primary home language and then coming to a university, hopping from high school, going into a tertiary institution, and now having to learn and study all this information in a whole language. It's literally learning everything you learned in high school all over again. How did you get, I mean, that seems not impossible, but like really dang hard. Like university itself is supposed to be challenging in a language that you understand. Like what, how did you get through that? (laughs) It was an interesting one. I'm not going to lie. I think when I just got to university, um, the most English I was just being introduced to was through television. So I had the most like thick American accent and people were like, where are you even from? Just because all my English I basically learned from watching television. <laughs> and then gradually throughout the years, that accent fell away. I'm sounding, I guess, more South African at this point, hopefully. You do. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and then you just learn and adapt like it's crazy how adaptable the human brain is so just living in an environment where people speak English every single day you become used to it you learn a lot quicker so yeah I guess that is how I adapted yeah that's great you're right we are super adaptable when we put our minds to it right it's funny you're not the only person that I've met that sounded like an American when they spoke English because it wasn't their first language because they learned it from watching movies. <laughs> that makes me so, it just cracks me up. I love it. So what did you study at university? Was there just kind of like a set course schedule? Or was there like a specific topic that just really captivated your interest? So I guess for me, that was the main draw to come study in Cape Town. Right over South Africa, we only have two universities that offer marine biology as an undergraduate degree, which is Cape Town and then one in Durban. And I think out of the two, Cape Town just felt a little bit as a safer option for my dad, who didn't really want me to study halfway across the country by myself. So picking the safer option, coming to Cape Town, I could have studied an undergraduate degree in zoology in Poch, where I grew up. But that would also mean I would only be introduced to marine subjects from my postgrad degree. So I would be missing out on a lot. Moving out to Cape Town, I studied marine biology and double majored in oceanography. So oceanography being more of the physics of the ocean, currents, uh, interplay between the ocean and the atmosphere. So really 
amazing. I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go in. So studying both biology, getting to know the marine life, the ecosystems, and then balancing that out with the oceanography aspect. I got the opportunity to study that from undergrad, first year, second year, third year, with the subjects getting a little bit more into depth with each year as we go. And if I didn't have that, and I just hopped straight into studying honors without knowing anything from the ocean, that would definitely have been a challenge. Yeah, that's a really good point, though, of just like studying something totally different. And then without having a stopgap, whether it was an internship or some sort of schooling to just jump right into your master's, that would be challenging, for sure. So what was your favorite topic during your undergrad? I actually really enjoyed oceanography more than marine science. I love because I'm also a big surfer. So learning why do we have waves, for instance, and then going in the ocean and seeing, oh, that's a wave. I know how that wave was formed. But also marine biology in general, just learning about all the different fish life, the ecosystems. For me, it was a whole incredible world that I wasn't really introduced to growing up. So my first time walking on the rocky shores and holding a starfish in my hand was when I was first year of university on a day field trip that we went to, which is insane to think about because right now we are taking these kids from underprivileged communities. We're taking them on the rocky shores. We're introducing them to the ecosystems around in Cape Town. And they are everything from the age of six years old to 14, 15. And to just have them learn about this from such a young age it is incredible. And I wish I had that opportunity and experience growing up as well. Yeah, that's really cool. So where are these kids from that you're working with? When I was also in first year, I started volunteering for the Save Our Seas Foundation Shock Education Center. They have a base in Colk Bay and they have a program called Marine Explorers. So with this, they take kids um, from underprivileged communities. They used to take them firstly surfing and then diving. Right now, we're just hopping into diving, taking them snorkeling, showing them the underwater world. And part of this program normally runs for about 10 weeks. We take the kids out on the boat, we take them to the aquarium and really just build their confidence in the ocean and in themselves at the end of the day. Through this, I volunteered for Save Our Seas for three years up until my honors degree. So for honors, I was one of those unfortunate people that studied through COVID. So that was 2021. So nothing much happened there. No, 2020, sorry. <laughs> yes. And 2021, I took a little bit of time to just travel, work. I worked as a research assistant in Umkamas, which is close to Aliwal Shoal. It's well known for being a hotspot for oceanic black tip diving. And then I went to Mozambique for three months and I also worked there as a research assistant, which was just amazing. And then full circle, coming back again, when I came back from Mozambique end of last year, I started running their social media for them. And that is where I am now. So I am helping them with their social media. I am writing blogs. I'm doing a little bit of science communication and then still get the opportunity every Friday to volunteer with the Marine Explorers, which is the same group of kids in the same program that helped me just spark this love for teaching and educating. That is so cool. I love how it's come full circle for you. So are these kids like, how do they find out about the program? How are they enrolled? Are they from all over the country? So these kids are all from communities within Cape Town. We focus on targeting underprivileged schools specifically. So what we'll do is we will identify a group of learners that we recently did a big group from Ecoactive, which is not necessarily a school, but it's a swimming group. So kids that learn to swim 
And then through that, we contacted them, reached out to the kids, asked them who would be willing or who is keen to learn more about the ocean, who wants to join this program. And then the kids would volunteer and say like, I am keen, I am interested. And that's how we get the kids. There is a little bit of a trial phase to just see if the kids are water competent. And if they qualify, we pick a group of 12 learners for a 10-week program. And that then continues throughout the year. So cool. I love that it's like a program, right? There's a lot of initiatives and not, and this is great too, that'll just do one day, right? Get the kids out, just experience it before one day. And often one day is enough to make that spark or that connection because, you know, for whatever reason, budgets or staff issues or whatever, that's all, that's all they can offer. You can include a lot more children with that one day and, you know, you can change a kid's life. But the idea of like a full week, several week long program is like fascinating because they really can like make that connection and take a dive into it and just really understand the ocean so much more. So I think that's amazing. I 100% agree with what you say there. In my undergraduate studies, I also worked as a coach for an organization called I Am Water Foundation. So they do exactly that. They do incredible work. The founder was also a free diver, so she has this big love for the ocean and wants to share that with the kids ultimately. But it is these short little workshops where you take the kids, cool, amazing day experience for them. A lot of them have never even like stepped foot in the ocean. They're from these communities that they're walking distance from the beach, but for them to just be able to put their head underwater, it's game changing. For there to no, not be any continuation afterwards, you don't really know if the impact that you are making is it going to carry on? Is it going to continue? For kids, they learn new things all the time. They are constantly being exposed to new stimuli, new things they learn at school, new activities that they do. So by taking them to the ocean, being like, cool, this is the experience. You can get out now. It's just another new experience. So with this 10-week continuation program, we really see a difference in the kids from the first week up until the last week. We have kids that they can float, but they can't really swim. And getting into the kelp forest for the first time, a lot of these kids are terrified of kelp. It's just a giant plant, but for them, it's like this big, scary monster. It's moving constantly. And they would go into the water and a good 10 meters, they'll swim out until where the kelp line starts. And they'll just stop. And they'll either jump on you or grab your hand. It's the cutest thing in the world. But then... It goes from seeing that to the progress, slowly letting go of your hand, going into the kelp forest. And after this, almost every single kid leaves being able to do a duck dive, swim through the kelp. We see things like seals, sharks, all these incredible animals that they didn't even know exist. It's so cool. I mean, getting in the ocean is amazing and like seeing all the creatures. I mean, there's just nothing like it, right? But like, seeing it through the eyes of somebody that has never seen it before is so rewarding. It's so special, right? And so you get to experience that with those children. That's super cool. 100%. And I mean, for me personally, like the ocean is such a great way to just mentally cope with all the things and anxieties going around in the world, the constant hustle, the beeps and buzzes from our cell phones and getting in the ocean and just being silent around me. And to have that little coping mechanism and now giving that to the kids as like a little tool to say, how does the ocean make you feel? You can actually see the kids grow so much in just confidence, 
not in their ability in the ocean or in their snorkeling abilities, but also confidence in themselves. They learn to back themselves a little bit more. So from being these shy little kids coming from not necessarily the best backgrounds and having them spend a whole afternoon in the ocean, not focusing on what is going on at home. It is, it's incredible. And also taking those little, little techniques like, okay, so if you breathe, when you snorkel, you have to breathe up and it's going to slow your heart rate down. So you do this so you can have more oxygen in the water. But you can also use these techniques when you're on a very stressful situation at home. So just by breathing, it allows you to calm down and relax. And we've actually had kids come back and say, I used the breathing and like it helped a lot. Like I did it before my test and I wasn't as stressed when I wrote the test. That's so cool. That's so rewarding to hear too. You know, you're giving them techniques for life, not just like giving them the stoke about the ocean, which is important. (laughs) Yes, 100%. So I want to chat a little bit about your research positions that you had. You said you traveled around after your honors, and I want to come back to that too. But what, what were you doing as you were traveling around? So that actually ties into a little bit what we were speaking about beforehand. So I really wanted to study marine biology. I had this big dream of being a marine biologist. I did not know what that meant. I just knew I wanted to be one. So I studied first year, second year, third year, studies done. Afterwards, I did my honors degree, honors degree done. Now what? Where where do I go from here? Unfortunately, it was mid-COVID. So getting a job in conservation was, it isn't a difficult thing. But this was just a little extra difficult because people like NGOs didn't get their funding. Companies didn't want to hire more staff. A lot of people were being retrenched at that time. So just finding a job was extremely difficult. I spent that entire December and January after finishing my honors degree, just applying to different jobs, sending in CVs with almost no luck. So marine biology, not as glamorous as people make it out to be. I want to make a point, put a pin in that for a second. So like, well, I'm curious, how many, do you know how many positions that you applied for? That is a good question. I think at one stage, I was averaging between three and eight CVs a day. Okay. And you did this for three months? Yeah, for about two months, I'd say. Okay, so two months. So that's 60 days. So let's say three a day, right? Your minimum. That would be... Three times six is eighteen, so one hundred and eighty. Easy, right? And that's and that's your that's your baseline. So for listeners, like, and this is what I like to bring up is like, people are like, oh, I applied to a couple jobs and I gave up, and I'm like, the key is to not give up. I mean, you applied to easily a couple hundred. It sounds like almost a thousand. You know, just a lot of jobs that before, and then it, and it started to pan out before it panned out, right? It was never ending. I mean, I applied for jobs that I was definitely qualified for and I couldn't get them because with my honors degree, there was people with PhD degrees applying for the same position. So obviously it would go to them. I applied for jobs in scuba diving. I ended up getting a couple of people responding back to me, but then either the country was closed or I couldn't get a visa to get into the country being South African. So a lot of barriers that were in the way. And then I also just took my shot and applied for all the cool jobs. I applied for Man to Trust. I applied for whale shark stuff up in the Maldives. Never even heard back from them, but. But you took the shot. Why not? 
But I took the shot. Why not? Because I was sending in so many things. I then got very lucky and had the opportunity to work on a research project in Umkumas for two months, focusing on black tips, oceanic black tips. There was internship program I was just starting up and it was tied to a scientist, Dr. Sarah Adriati in Stellenbosch. And I knew her just from being around Cape Town, being in the dive community, and they needed somebody for the interim to fill a project coordinator position. And I was like, I, I'm ready. And in two days, I packed up everything and I headed for who knows, I don't know how long, to Umkamas to go work there. So cool. So what, what were some of your roles and responsibilities while you were there? Mm, so roles was... Um, just basically looking after the interns if they needed any food shopping done I had my car there I need to drive them around do some food shopping I would plan activities to do on the days that we weren't diving I was the main person of contact between the dive center and the interns and then also getting exposed to the actual diving so diving on the boats with them as an instructor I also helped lead some of the dives around in the area and then just doing logistics, making sure everybody does the data entry after each dive. When I was there, I helped set up a long-term reef monitoring project, which is still running. And I'm very stoked to see that that is still happening. So cool. Yeah. So that was very fun. But being just South African, you look at these internship projects. And I think just comparing the rand to the dollar, a lot of these internships charge in dollars. And South African rand compared to the dollar is almost 1 to 16. So for us, it is just unaffordable. Firstly, paying for your plane tickets to get to these places and then paying to work and get experience. Like I 100% understand like where they're coming from. Like you getting experience, it is good for your CV and you sometimes do need the experience before you can just hop onto a job. So it gives people that. But for people from... Yeah, like smaller countries like South Africa, it's just not a possibility. Or just people that don't have, because it's not like they're talking about a couple hundred dollars. It's usually a few thousand and it can be a lot of money. Exactly. So when I came back from Umkamas, I then decided to do my skipper's course in Sudwana Bay. Such a special place to me. I also waited my instructor's course. It is where I did my first ever scuba dive when I was 11. So I, I just always come back there. Like if I ever find myself like, what do I want to do now? Cool, Sudwana Bay. So Sudwana Bay did my skippers and then came back to Cape Town. And through also applying for these opportunities, somebody in Mozambique reached out to me. It was an internship program. And they said, listen, we can't pay you to come like do the work, but we do need somebody to do the social media for us. So we are willing to waive the internship fee. So I wasn't being paid, but I also wasn't paying. So I did a full three month internship. And in return, I ran the social media for them, which was really fun. It was an incredible opportunity living in rural Mozambique for three months, diving with manta rays, whales, um, it was humpback whale season while we were there. It was my not yeah, my first time seeing an oceanic manta ray. So I had incredible dives. I got great experience. And then afterwards, coming back to Cape Town and without even looking for any jobs, a lot of opportunities just opened up. So sometimes it's just about waiting for the right time in the right place. So I came back from Mozambique and then the next day, Save Our Seas called and asked, we see you're back. What are you doing? Do you want to meet with us? And I met with them the next day and then that's how, how it happened. Amazing. I also think like you putting that much effort 
into it, right? Putting that much energy into into what you're doing kind of just like front loaded the work for it to just kind of like slide in and be easy for you in the background, because that was a ton of work that you did trying to like find something and figure it out. Well, I have to say, and like those internships as well, because now you kind of have the extra responsibility. You feel you aren't really paying and you with these people that are paying a lot of money. So now you are doing all the extra work. So you're doing the internship plus work on top of that. So it's hard work for that time being, but definitely all worth it at the end of the day. You get lots of great experience, made great people through it. And then, yeah, also I think in November last year, another company reached out without me even applying for it. They needed a wildlife TV presenter. So then for six months up until last month, I worked doing live safaris for a local TV show. Super fun. How cool is that? So how do you do a live safari? Like you actually went to the game parks? So this company, they do work up in the Kruger National Park, up in the Sabi Sands, but then they also do work in Cape Town at a place called Stony Point. For those who don't know, it is one of two South African, um, African penguin colonies that is based there. So they did rocky shores, coastal birds, and then obviously penguins being the star of the show. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. What was the name of the show? It was called Penguin Beach. <laughs> so I talked literally every day for an hour about penguins and then the odd little um, dusty, which is a Cape Rock Hyrax that was in the area or some other birds flying around. It was fun work. <laughs> it got a little bit tiring, I have to admit, but it was great fun. Also met some pretty amazing people through it. And I really think is where I am at the moment. I do a million different things. People ask me, so like, what do you do? It's, it's my absolute worst question to get asked. because I never know what to respond. Yes. The answer is all of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally do all of it. So I always tell people I'm a freelance marine biologist. It's a good way to sum it up. Yeah, exactly. And then that just, I think leads to more questions, but Yeah, what I do is basically a lot of things that are freelance, freelancing for Save Our Seas, running social media, writing blogs, doing science communication, freelancing as a wildlife presenter, doing my own small dive school that I started while I was doing my honors degree. So all these small little things, a little bit of content creation there, shoots here and there, that, that adds up. So very, very busy at the moment and everything just came at the right time, the right place. So I'm so grateful to have all these opportunities, but it didn't just came like it wasn't handed to me. I spent so much time, as you said, applying to different jobs, learning new skills, putting myself out there, but I wouldn't change any of those experiences I had. That's amazing. Yeah. And like all of those experiences got you to where you are right now. So can't change them. You're meant, you are meant to be where you're meant to be. You're there. So I want to go back to, you're diving how did you get into even the learn to scuba you said your dad took you like was he a diver or is he just like this is something I want to do come on let's do it so I was a very stubborn and annoying kid growing up we would always go to Sedwana Bay as our little holiday spot once a year and I would see these scuba divers walking on the beach and I would just tell my dad every single year I want to do that dad I want to scuba dive I want to learn to scuba dive And when I was 11 and I was old enough, he finally took me for a DSD experience 
And it was the biggest mistake he's probably ever made in his entire life because he did not know what he created that day. <laughs> oh, I love it. So did the experience together, hopped in the pool at the resort, and then they just tossed us in the ocean afterwards. I think that whole dive lasted about 20 minutes. I was just swimming around like a little ping pong ball, like up and down, chasing all the fish. I did one swim through apparently like four or five times. And my dad had to try and keep up with me. So he breathed out his whole cylinder of air in 20 minutes. And we had to just call it right there and then. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So when I was old enough, I turned 13. My dad and I did our CMAS one star together. So... Yeah, it was pretty fun having the opportunity, like the opportunity to do it with my dad. So we did our CMAS one star. Is that like your open water? So we did not have paddy in Pachastrum where I grew up. So we did our CMAS one star. It's equivalent to a paddy open water course. So for the open water section, we did it in a lake called Bass Lake. I didn't even see a bass. We just saw some grass and I think like an old airplane, a bus they put in there. And the year afterwards, went back to Sudwana Bay again, and I could officially dive as a one-star open-water diver, which is very exciting. And then when I was in matric, my final year of high school, I then realized, okay, I want to study marine biology. I like scuba diving. So then I did my advanced course. When I was first year of university, I went to do my rescue course, which is my first PADI-affiliated course that I did through the university's underwater club. And the end of my second year, I completed my dive masters in Sedwana Bay. The end of my third year, completed my instructors. Again, went back to Sedwana Bay. And yeah, during my honors year, the whole reason behind just starting my dive school was, all right, I was studying full time. I didn't have the opportunity to work at a dive center, but I still wanted to instruct. I absolutely love teaching people. I have this new qualification. I have this skill. I can take people into the ocean. I can show them how incredible Cape Town's kelp forest is, but I just felt stuck in a way that I don't want a full-time job, just dive instructing, but I also want to study at the same time. So while studying and while South Africa is put under this three-month lockdown for COVID, I used the time to create a website, to get some advertising together. And when the world unpaused again, I was ready. And I was like, I'm here. Who wants to go diving with me? Awesome. Yeah, I did really well. I think the everything just started out of my stoke for just sharing the ocean, sharing how beautiful the underwater world is. And my business slowly progressed from just teaching courses to doing leaded shore dives. From needed shore dives to writing my own online underwater photography courses and having people do that anywhere in the world. That's super cool. Yeah, your website is amazing. I love it. So how do you pronounce the name of your school? Capensis? Capensis? Mm, thank you very much. And yeah, that is correct. It is Capensis. So I think I'm a really big nerd and the name gives it away. So Capensis is actually Latin and it means originating from the Cape. And I call it that because that is where my passion for teaching and the ocean really got sparked. Yeah. And Cape Town is such a special spot. So your diving in Cape Town is significantly different than Sudwana. So for listeners, Sudwana Bay is on the east coast of Africa and is along the Mozambique Channel. And it's like pretty warm water, like tropical coral reef water. And Cape Town is on the southern points of South Africa And it is 
cold. It is very cold water and you have kelp forests and it's gorgeous and beautiful, but it's significantly different ecosystems. So what does diving with Capensis diving look like? I actually love the way you phrased that question. Cape Town is cold indeed. So the thing that makes it completely different is just the gear that you wear. So you, when you do a scuba dive or free dive, you wear your normal wetsuit, BCD, but now you are also wearing a hood and gloves and booties and maybe an extra wetsuit. Or if you get really cold, you even wear a dry suit. Although I don't think Cape Town's water is cold enough for a dry suit. When you dive in False Bay, which is also Cape Town, side note, amazing, amazing, just because we have two oceans. So on the east-ish side, we have False Bay. And False Bay is uh, Gator's water from the warm Angolas current. And then on the other side, if you hop over Table Mountain, you get the Atlantic Ocean, which is a little bit colder. So if you dive False Bay, average temperature is around 15 degrees. But if you hop over Atlantic side, I would say average is about 10 degrees. All right. Hang on. I'm going to do a translate. So Atlantic side, 10 degrees. Oh, it's 50 degrees Fahrenheit for listeners. And then False Bay is almost 60 degrees for listeners. (laughs) Which is still cold, if you think about it that way. Yeah. <laughs> but just the ecosystem that if you put your head underwater, it is surreal. If you dive a coral reef, you have this two-dimensional structure that you're looking down at. There's fish swimming around. There might be the ot swim through a cave. When you are in the kelp, you are in the kelp. It is literally this whole forest. It's a 360 experience around you. Everything is three-dimensional. You are touching the kelp. It is around you. It's over you. And then the animals that just call the kelp its home. It is like taking a a walk or a hike in a forest. But now it's underwater. So that is one of my all-time favorite parts. And then just the animals you see, everything from the small little shy sharks to octopus and seals. It is so full of life. I would always say when you dive a tropical area you'd be lucky if you see a starfish or a sea urchin you dive a rocky reef in cape town and it is colorful sea fans it is a hundred starfish 50 sea urchins all on just one rock it's awesome and nudibranchs we have very cool nudibranchs ah there you go that's a good seller we have awesome nudibranchs come see our sea slugs I love it. I mean, they are amazing, though. And they're worth, I mean, for divers, like to go see lots of nudibranchs is like worth making the trip, right? Because especially if you take underwater photography, like they're just so photogenic and amazing. Oh, 100%. I would say like, if you are lucky, you can see up to 20 species of nudibranch on one dive. We see about average 10. And then in numbers, everything from gas flames, which is like this big, they get to about 15 centimeters to the teeniest, tiniest little ghost nudibranchs. It's like half the size of your pinky nail and far in between. It is just insane. Macro photography in Cape Town is definitely, I would say, one of the best in the world. Yeah. And it's something that not not a lot of people think about when they think about scuba diving initially, right? Usually it's like they jump right into clear tropical waters and instead you're diving in clear, significantly not tropical waters, but still amazing. That's the one thing a lot of people die for the megafauna. They want to see whales and dolphins and turtles. We don't necessarily have that in Cape Town. We do have very cool residents. So on the odd dive, you will see 
a large seven-gilled cow shark or an African penguin, seals, we have plenty of seals, maybe an octopus or two, but we don't have that iconic megafauna. So when you dive, you really use the time to look for the little things, the small little nudibranchs, the little puffer fish that we get. We get so many very small little pipe fish. We had a John Dory the other day. So really interesting species that if you look at them, you're like, how are you even real? How are you an animal swimming in the sea? And that's what I love about Cape Town diving. I can go dive the exact same location every single day and I would see something new all the time. Amazing. And are you going out mostly shore dives or are you going out on the boat? So we do do both. I would say shore diving is one of my favorites because you don't have to worry about all the logistics. It's literally just you getting a dive group together, gearing up and just walking to the ocean. Boat diving is exciting when you do get to do some boat dives because we have tons of shipwrecks scattered all along the coast. So a lot of it is wreck diving or we have a few seal colonies. So if you want to specifically dive with seals and you want to make sure you see a seal, you go to a seal colony, you hop in and between 20 and 100 seals would come into the water, come play with you, come check you out. That's amazing. That is so amazing. They're the most playful like puppies of the sea in the world. They look like big fat blobs on land. But as soon as I just slide off the rock into the water, they turn into these torpedoes. They'll come at you. And they absolutely love cameras, especially if you have a big dome port because of that reflection. So they'll come right up to you. They're like, oh, look how pretty I look today. Exactly. They're just checking themselves out and saying hi. No, it's such a surreal experience. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. I love it so much. So I want to chat a little bit about diving in Sudwana Bay. So when people, a lot of it, most of it, I think all that I saw in Sudwana was all boat dives. I don't think I really saw any shore diving. And it was kind of hectic coming from the US, Florida, like where you get on a boat in a marina and they like put put you out the inlet. And like, maybe there's some waves in the inlet, but like, you're on a big enough boat, it just kind of crashes through them, whatever, and then you get offshore and it's fine. Sedwana was uh, an adventure just getting to the reef. We were on like ribs, right? The rubber inflated boats and you helped pull it off the beach and then you get on the boat. The captains that are driving these boats are amazing. I don't know what kind of training they have to go through, but they are dodging not just little waves, they're dodging straight up huge, like overhead breaking waves. <laughs> and that's how you get to your dive site. It was amazing. <laughs> but it's such an experience. And that's also why I wanted to do my skipper's course there. Because you get trained in some of the gnarliest like breaks in the world. So there's only two places that they really do surf launch in South Africa. Aliwal Shoal being one and there's Duana Bay being the other. And you can battle anywhere from one to three meter waves just to get behind the surf. And once you get behind the surf, then you have 10 to a 30 minute boat ride to get to your destination, which is, which is quite insane. I have to say, you mentioned no shore diving in Sedona Bay, which is not true, although I wouldn't recommend it. So for my 300th dive, I think it was just when I finished my instructor's course, I stayed and worked to get a little bit of experience. We borrowed some cylinders from the place I worked for, and then we headed to do a shore dive. But 
It was a shore dive, selling my 300th dive on Christmas Day. So we all wore Santa hats and just BCDs and cylinders. And we walked into the water and it was two and a half meter swell. We tried so hard to get to the back. And we were literally on our knees, like putting our hands in the sand, digging, clawing our way, like past the swell. We eventually did. And then we're just all so tired that we swam around for five minutes. So we were running low on air and then we had to swim back again. So you can shore dive. It's just not recommended. And that's why. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? That really put a pin in your 300th dive. <laughs> it's one way to celebrate it. No, it did. I always try and do something super fun for every like 100th milestone. The most recent one, well, not the most recent one, I actually missed my, my 600th. It was very sad. But for my 500th, I was in Umkamas at the time, diving Aliwal Shoal with the Oceanic Black Tips, and I decided to do a blindfolded baited shark dive. All right. How'd that go? Wait, 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 blindfolded. You didn't want to see the sharks coming? Well, at that point, I was diving with the sharks four or five times a day uh, or a week. Okay, so you see them. Yeah. Well, I was used to them. I knew the area and it was just, it was a bad visibility day. We weren't able because we were back then doing um, just video analysis to determine shark behavior as they come close to the bait ball, how do they interact with each other, how they interact with other species of sharks. And it was a bad visibility day. We couldn't really get that great footage. So I was like, you know what? This is my, like, this, like, mini, like my 500 dive coming up. So why not just do a blindfolded? I would say the buoyancy was the biggest thing. I luckily had a couple of friends help me. Like I just every now and again felt either like a tug pulling me up or like a tug pulling me down. Uh, and as we were drifting with the current, they would just like come like get me to like swim and kick. I did a lot better than I thought I would. But because I just like the whole thing with the buoyancy is I just paid attention to my ears the entire hour long dive. Just if I felt my ears like not like getting like a little bit tighter or not. And just through my ears and through equalizing knew whereabouts in the water column I was. Yeah, because that would be it. Otherwise, like you can't visually see your gauges can't tell you you're not using your eyeballs. So you spend an hour just really, I mean, almost meditating, right? Getting real intimate with your internal workings. Yeah, literally. It, it was very cool, though. My friends just thought it was like very fun at one point to shake the bait drum or like put me next to the bait drum and shake it. So I got just buzzed by a couple of sharks and did not know what was going on until afterwards. That is awesome. It also highlights how sharks are not man eating machines because you're literally sitting there blindfolded while they were in feeding and they they had no interest. <laughs> no, none whatsoever. They just probably thought like this is the weirdest human what is happening they do not want anything to do with me there is an obstacle in my way shoe <laughs> yeah. oh you you run trails i saw you're running i like i was like i recognize that trail we hiked table mountain when i was there so what got you into trail running hi that that is a good one uh so what got me into trail running is i've always been a super outdoorsy person where growing up i wouldn't even run a 5k I played underwater hockey for about five years from grade nine up until second year of university. Wait, hang on. Yeah, you got to explain underwater hockey. I'm like, I know water polo. We used to play a game called squid, which I can like, it's like underwater American football. What is underwater hockey? 
Oh, we had a game called Underwater Rugby. That's I didn't play it as a sport, but that's not similar to Squid. That that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so underwater hockey, it is a fantastic sport. So basically you have a small little hockey stick that is 30 centimeters and curved, looks like a field hockey stick. You play it in a swimming pool that is about 10 by 12 meters, average two meters deep. And then you wear a mask, snorkel, fins, and then with your little hockey stick, you dive down to the bottom and there you have a puck. So like an ice hockey puck, round and flat, and it sits at the bottom of the swimming pool. And then you have a team of six people, two teams playing against each other, and your goal is to get that puck to the other side of the swimming pool to score a goal. It's all played at the bottom of the swimming pool. So imagine running but holding your breath while running. That's underwater. Right. Oh, man. Well, that'll keep you in shape. (laughs) It's a good exercise for your lungs. And it's a lot different to free diving. So a lot of people think like because I played underwater hockey, that made free diving really easy to me. And it's the opposite way around because with free diving, you're holding your breath for an extended period of time, coming up and recovering for really long. They say up to three times the amount of time you are underneath for. With underwater hockey, the whole goal is to be underwater for 20 to 30, 40 seconds, but then you come up, take one breath and go back down again. So a complete type of breath holding and fitness level that you need. Right. I mean, it helps, but it is totally different. That's wild. That's cool. Okay, so how did you get into trail running? We, we digress by underwater hockey. <laughs> yes. So I was playing underwater hockey for the SA team. Wait, what's the SA team? Uh, so I was playing underwater hockey for the South Africa's national team. Okay, cool. Yeah, and for the exercises we had to do for training camps, we had a 5K time trial once a month. I hated doing that time trial Growing up as a kid, I was never the runner. And one day I just, I was forced to run because of the time trial. Just decided to run a little bit more, run a little bit further and slowly but surely just started hating it less. I still never loved it. And then lockdown came and I spent most of lockdown on the farm with my parents. I didn't have access to a swimming pool or the ocean or a gym. So the exercise I did was running and I just saw it as exercise, nothing more, nothing less. And then when last year came and I had all these opportunities to work in Umkamas, work in Mozambique, the only thing I took with me was a pair of running shoes. And just by running, I had the opportunity to explore the area I was in and get exercise. And I just slowly over time fell in love with it. I recently started doing trail races. I did my first one two weekends ago. And this weekend I have my second trail race coming up. It is incredible. Just spending so much time in the mountains, in the outdoors. It is connecting with nature like you are when you are diving in the water, but nature in a whole different way. I didn't grow up with the mountains around me. So to just be present all the time. And the thing I love about trail running is you are forced to be present. As soon as your mind goes somewhere else, you're not you're not longer concentrating on where your feet's going and you'll fall flat on your face. Yes, 100%. And like, like I said, we hike Table Mountain. And if you're not watching where your feet are going, you will fall flat on your face. It's very rocky and... <laughs> Not much, not much of it's flat. Yeah, so I've been learning um, more and more about trail running and the mountains. The first race I did two weekends ago was a 25 kilometer and it was running around Table Mountain and then down again. 
So a very popular route is Platiklip, which you like kind of zigzag up to get to Table Mountain. I'm not too sure the route that that you did. We went straight up. Straight up. Sounds like Platiklip. Yeah, I think it was Platiklip. That sounds super familiar. So we ran straight down that in the rain. Oh my God. I cannot imagine going down that. People were going down that with ropes when I was there. You ran down it? Yeah, so we ran down it. And it was also, I wasn't supposed to race. My friend showed up at my office at Save Our Seas that Friday afternoon while we were busy with the Marine Explorers kids. And he was like, last minute entry has just been open for like the UTCT race. Do you want to come join us? And I told him, heck to the no. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not silly. And an hour later, I phoned him and I told him I was on the way to pick up my race back. (laughs) Just had to think about it for a second. Yeah, exactly. I don't regret it, though. It was so much fun. And this weekend coming up, we're doing another 25K. It's a great way to meet people and just spend time in nature. Absolutely. I agree with that. Something I wanted to ask, and this is totally backtracking. Why did you decide to get your honors? Mm. And is this the equivalent of like your master's? Yes. So for us in South Africa, our undergraduate degree is only three years and we don't do a thesis within that three years. So we are kind of not forced. You don't have to do an honors degree. But if you want to do your master's degree and start applying for international universities, that is required for you to do honors to do your master's at the end of the day. Yeah. So that is why I did it. I was hoping to go from undergraduate to honors to masters maybe even phd that opportunity did bring like come up and with 2020 when i did my honors it wasn't the most ideal to be out in the field doing work so i decided to put a break on my master's year and spend time getting experience and then i'll come back to do my master's and when i was out there working as a research assistant, seeing how research is done, science is done, it kind of deterred me from wanting to go more into research. Mm. I absolutely love science. Like I'm the biggest nerd. I love learning. Throughout my undergraduate degree, like I spent probably a lot of time. I memorized 60 Latin names of the most common nudibranch species in Cape Town for fun. That's how much of a nerd I am. So I actually love science. Like, But there was just this one thing, like just seeing how people do research and it kind of deterred me from it a little bit. What was it about it? Okay. So there's like a little bit of like, I would say people operating under the radar, not necessarily following the right ethics, I would say, not getting community involved. So a lot, and that can be a topic to expand on on its own, but I'm choosing not to go into that topic. But just seeing how research was done, I felt there was so much more to this, to science. People have been doing research for years and years, but nobody was communicating this research to the general public. We as scientists read papers. We see new studies come out. We know when a new species is discovered. But what does all that matter if nobody's really like getting all that information on the other side, which is also where I just started like wanting to share all this information. So through my social media, whenever I was out diving or saw something cool, I would post about it and share it. And then 
I guess like a couple of months after coming back from Mozambique, I realized science communication was like, it was a thing. Like people do this. And it's such like a new and interesting field. It's so much that's yet to be discovered and all these new tools that's constantly coming out around it. So it's something that I chose to want to dabble more in doing online courses on discovering how we can use things like social media, videography, cinematography, storytelling to communicate science in a way without just doing all the research. Because we have been doing all the research and nobody's going to care if you find a new nudibranch species that is about to go extinct if nobody knows about the nudibranch species that's about to go extinct. Right. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. So at the end of each episode, a series of questions that I love to ask. What's your favorite sea creature and why? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So for years and years, if you would ask me, I would have said a whale shark because firstly, they're whale sharks. Secondly, they just chill in the sun and they eat all day long, which is like the dream life. But nowadays, my heart is like saying great white just because it's been a dream of mine to see a great white shark ever since I was little, like watching shark week. It's the reason I wanted to like study marine biology. And I don't know, lately my heart's just been like calling me to great whites, just to see one in the wild, to experience their strength and their power. We all know like when it comes to sharks, females, they're the strong independent ones and great whites take this to a whole new level. Females get a lot larger than males they're more aggressive. So yeah. Have you seen one? I haven't. I would love to. I want to highlight that you've spent an amazing amount of time playing in the water in what could be regarded as some of the sharkiest waters in the world. Like you literally have a shark board dedicated (laughs) to and you still haven't seen a great white. I've not seen a great white from a boat. I've not seen one from the shore or underwater. I don't know if I just have bad luck. I don't know. I just hear from people all the time. I don't want to go swim in the ocean because I'm afraid of sharks. And I'm like, that's very sad. You're missing out on for something that just doesn't make any sense. We have so many great sharks in Cape Town. We have bronze whalers, cow sharks, uh, small little shy sharks and pajama sharks. If you go just offshore, you can dive with makos and blue sharks. One of my favorite dives to do out in the pelagic. But great whites... Sadly not. Their populations have just been on the decline that they used to frequent the little site called Seal Island and a lot of great documentaries, including Air Jaws, where they caught some of the great whites breaching behavior. It was filmed there, but they're just not around anymore. Mm. That's sad. That's sad to hear. So you're the first person that has said great white, though, for your favorite animal. I love it. Yeah. All right. What does the ocean mean to you? In one word, everything. Everything. Just because the ocean is such a great sustainer of life, literally 70% of the oxygen we breathe is produced by the ocean, by kelp forests, phytoplankton in the ocean. We get our water through the water cycle that comes from the ocean. We get our food from the ocean. Without it, we wouldn't be able to live. Mentally, the ocean brings me peace, happiness, joy, And I just can't imagine my life without the ocean. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? Oh my gosh. So I actually thought about this one the entire weekend. And (laughs) I just have too many ideas. Like 
that is such a big one. I think where my heart is at like right now, I have been just been so privileged to work with all these kids from these communities and my heart has been like just getting bigger and bigger like each week seeing the stoke on their faces having the opportunity to teach them learn something new I want to one day just have the opportunity to just give a kid a camera in the hand and teach them underwater photography or take these kids and take them scuba diving so if I got a blank check I would create a center where People can come have experiences. Maybe I take them out on trips and expeditions. So I love talking, presenting. I love traveling, going to all these places. And the money from the trips can then go towards either getting some of these kids on board, taking them with, putting that back into skills development, teaching them scuba diving, teaching them underwater photography, um, and also just equipping them with the tools and telling them, like, these are the different careers you can do in the ocean. It's not just like researching all the time. You can be a marine archaeologist. Uh, you can be like an underwater Indiana Jones. You can travel the world, take photos. You can be a water quality resource manager and, and, and. Uh, so that would be my project. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be just an amazing day out in the water or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. Mm. I left that one and I thought I'm going to leave it for the interview. Whenever like we get here, I'm going to, I'm going to have a story. And by chatting, I got my story. So we're talking about the sharks in Aliwal Shoal. And I can proudly say that I'm a shark attack survivor. <laughs> it's not as hectic as it sounds, by the way. So I was just diving this one day and how a baited shark dive work is there is a line going down with a big bait drum attached to the bottom that sits around five meters. In that bait drum, there's a little bit of holes and that is where you put your bait, a little bit of sardines. And as you move it through the water, as the currents come out, it just gets the scent of the fish in the area. So any shark that is close by gets attracted. So it doesn't feed the sharks. It doesn't get sharks out of weird places they can only smell for a couple of kilometers so if the shark's in the area it will come check it out and I was sitting finished the dive finished the um, surveys for the day doing my safety stop at five meters above this bait line I was there for about two weeks into my stay and I was warned wear socks wear gloves maybe tie your hair up me no, it's warm water. I come from Cape Town. I want to dive in a short wetsuit. I want to have my hair flowing because I'm used to diving in a hood. And that day I just drove with a surf suit. I had like this big white piece of my ankle sticking out. I didn't have gloves. My hair was floating everywhere. I basically looked like a giant sardine. I was a <laughs> floating piece of bait. And as I finished my safety stop, I just felt this like knock against my ankle and a black tip decided to come take a little little nibble, taste it out, see what I am. I didn't even realize what happened until I got to the boat. And somebody was like, what happened to your ankle? And I'm like, I, I don't even know. So it literally took the slightest little nibble. I have like a scar this big right now. Okay. That's like less than an inch. <laughs> less than even like half an inch, but it's there. So that is my story. I have survived a shark attack. 
Amazing. So after that dive, did you put your hood on, gloves on, or are you just like, nah, it's fine. We'll keep going with it. I definitely put socks on and I just tied my hair up afterwards. There you go. <laughs> Love that story. I'd like to leave the audience with a conservation has to go forth and bring it to the world. What would you like the audience to take from your episode today? Mm. So if I could tell the audience anything, I would say that your content has a voice and whether you choose to use it or not, that voice has the potential to inspire others. So whether it is just posting about your trip to the beach, whether it's posting about doing a beach cleanup or learning a new ocean fact, I recommend just post it, put it out there because you never know where that might go or what difference that might make into somebody's life, whether it is a friend, a colleague, somebody who just follows you on social media. So get that out there and just just share the ocean stoke. All right. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you, your work, fences diving, where's the best place to do so? I would definitely recommend finding me on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at mermaiddanny. And for my dive school, it is at Capensis Diving. I highly recommend checking out both accounts. They're really fun to look at. <laughs> Yay, thank you. Yeah, I'll put a link to that and everything we chatted about in the show notes today. Well, this is so much fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to just share the ocean stoke. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.